Hey friends, this is Linda, and you're listening to Calling Water. Each week on our podcast, we look at a passage of scripture and ask ourselves two questions. What does it mean and what does it call us to do? In today's episode, even more indignified, we're looking at the story of David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's actually quite a fascinating chapter, so if you can, I encourage you to pause and read through the passage before continuing to listen. We'll talk about how the story reminds us of how we can be in God's presence instead of drowning it out with our own antics. Let's get started. So for the past couple of weeks, our family has been shifting some things around in our house, switching rooms, moving furniture around. And whenever we get into a project like this, my husband and I are polar opposites. My husband is super minimalistic and loves throwing stuff away. The best way to clean up in his mind is to get rid of everything. Me? I keep everything and I find a way to stash it all somewhere. So as you can imagine, it causes some tension. The main difference between our housekeeping styles is that my husband is much more concerned with an item's usefulness, whereas I assign sentimental value to everything. We even tried that Marie Kondo tidying up method, you know, where you discard anything that doesn't spark joy. Guess how many things I threw out as a result? Zero. Everything sparks joy because even if the item in question has no purpose whatsoever, the fact that it was gifted to me eight years ago by someone who I don't even talk to anymore is enough for me. Because it's not the thing that sparks joy, it's what the thing represents. So as we examine the story of David dancing before the Ark of the Lord today, We have to bear in mind that his joy was not in the ark itself. It was in what the ark symbolized, which was the presence of God. So as we go through the passage, ask yourself if what is happening in the text is amplifying the presence of God or detracting from it. Because contrary to what you might have thought in the past, this story is a little bit more complicated than just bringing the ark from one location to another. Approximately 10 years passed between the time the prophet Samuel anoints David at his family's estate and when he actually becomes the new king of Israel. And a lot happens during that time, most notably him having to run for his life constantly from King Saul. In the text in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David has been king for some time now and has newly set up Jerusalem as his capital. He gathers together 30,000 able-bodied men to bring in the Ark of the Covenant into the new capital city. And it takes a few months for the Ark to finally reach Jerusalem, and we'll talk about why in a sec. But this was a monumental occasion for David and the kingdom. The Ark by this point already had a long history. It had been constructed during the time Israel's ancestors had been in the wilderness after they fled Egypt. And the Ark was situated in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the tabernacle, and could only be accessed by the high priest and only once a year. The Ark could only be carried by those of the priestly line and was often carried into battle. The ark was a symbol of God being with the people and the closest thing to God's physical presence being manifested among the people. 
Now, I know Indiana Jones has led us to believe that the Ark itself has special powers, but what made it sacred was that it represented God's presence and holiness. So for David to bring the Ark into the city was a joyful event. It was David's way of steering the people back to God because the previous king had forgotten about the Lord. It was a way of promoting stability and establishing a national spiritual identity even. He was reminding the people and even himself that Yahweh needed to be back in the center of their activities. So there were so many festivities to accompany this grand procession. There was music, rituals, food, and dancing. This passage tells us that David was so overjoyed that he practically danced his clothes off, literally. Now sandwiched inside the stories of these joyous proceedings is two lesser known stories. And you'll see why these stories aren't talked about all that much. The first is the story of a man named Uzzah. He was one of two brothers who had the task of transporting the ark on a new cart. The text mentions that the cart was new twice, probably to mean that this cart was fitted especially to carry the ark. And sometime mid-transit, the oxen that were pulling the cart stumbled and Uzzah reached out and grabbed the ark to steady it on the cart which seems like an ordinary and reasonable thing to do. But verse 7 tells us that the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act and he died immediately. Now, the story is kind of confusing because it seems petty to smite a person for something so commonplace, like trying to prevent the ark from falling off the cart. But For us to come to terms with this occurrence, we have to remember this is pre-Jesus times. The law was all the people had in terms of a relationship with God. Their adherence to the commandments and the regulations set in place through Moses was how the people showed their faithfulness to God. So Uzzah's mistake here was not simply touching the ark, even though he should have known better. It was the entire manner in which the ark was handled. According to Mosaic law, the ark was made to be carried on the shoulders of Levi priests, not conveniently pulled by cattle as though they were just moving everyday items. Regarding the ark with such a cavalier attitude instead of giving it the highest honor was symbolic of what was in the hearts of the people toward God. If they could just toss the ark on the bed of a cart and treat their most sacred relic so carelessly, clearly they were not revering God the way they ought to have. And David becomes outraged and also afraid at Uzzah's death and halts the parade for three months. And the ark is taken to the home of someone named Obed-Edom. And they must have handled the ark properly because God blesses him and his entire household. So David decides it's safe to move the ark again and resumes the celebration. This brings us to our second mini story in the text, which is that of David's wife, Michal, the daughter of the late King Saul. Now, she is not at all happy about the scene unfolding below her, as described in verse 16 of our text. 
As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. But she doesn't just keep it in her heart. She lets David know precisely how upset she is. In verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. She does not mask the contempt she has for him and his actions. And David's famous response to her is that he will celebrate before the Lord as he sees fit, considering it was the Lord who made him king. He says in verse 22, I will become even more indignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. He is saying he does not mind looking like a fool if it is in rejoicing with the Lord. And we know from reading his Psalms that David is a very emotional guy and he has equal capacity for happiness as he does for sadness. I mean, he mourned the death of each of his enemies, including the death of Saul, Michal's father, who had tried to kill him for the better part of 10 years. So we know that his jubilant dancing before the Lord isn't purely showmanship. Now, many people say that McCall was displeased because she was not accustomed to anyone being so consumed with joy for the Lord, and it all just looked ridiculous to her. And some say it's because she was raised a royal and she didn't think that David's behavior was befitting a king, consorting with commoners like that. Still, others say that she was jealous of the attention he was getting from the women in the streets. Now, it's absolutely possible that her disdain for David was any combination of these things. Maybe she was ignorant or elitist or resentful. Maybe all of those things or maybe even none of these things. Because without going into too much detail, here's a little bit of McCall's backstory. We find in 1 Samuel chapter 18 that she was actually in love with David. And Saul, her father, decides to use her affections for David as a ploy to trap David. He tells David he would give him his daughter in marriage if he can slaughter a hundred Philistine soldiers. Now Saul wasn't challenging David here. Saul expected David to die. He didn't really have any intention of making David his son-in-law, but against all odds, David succeeds and Michal becomes his wife. Soon afterward, upon learning that Saul is once again trying to kill him, David runs away and Michal helps him escape. She even lies to her father on David's behalf. And David never returns and Michal later marries another man. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, David finally sends for her but simply as a political maneuver so that no child of hers could contest for the throne. And by this time, David already has two other wives, but Michal is separated from her husband, who the Bible tells us heartbreakingly that he followed after her weeping. Then Michal becomes one of David's many wives, and she is never given any children. Whether it's because she's barren or because David won't see her, we're not sure. 
Regardless, it's a tragic story. They both are the stories of Uzzah and the story of Mikal. And it's curious that both their accounts are included in the story of the Ark of the Covenant being brought into Jerusalem. Like they have nothing to do with the Ark, really. So what is the significance of placing them in this narrative? Well, this passage seems to be telling us that humans constantly try to overshadow God, whether it's on purpose or unwittingly. 2 Samuel chapter 6 should really be only about how the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the city and everyone rejoiced. The end. But because God's presence is invisible, we, as the visible actors, pull focus away from God and center it on ourselves. So this passage really is a call to recenter our gaze and to do it with the right heart. The story of Uzzah reminds us that being in the presence of God is holy ground, which means how we approach and call upon God's presence is reflective of the condition of our hearts. So ask yourself, how do you spend time with God? Is it regarded as a sacred event or has it become a routine chore? Instead of doing the heavy lifting of putting the ark on your shoulders by investing time into worship, are you just depending on a new cart to carry it for you? I mean, I love technology and the pandemic has shown us that there are so many methods we can employ to worship. And I mean, that's what got us into creating this podcast in the first place. But as you use these different platforms, it still needs to be treated with the highest honor because it is God we are communing, communing with, even digitally. And the story of McCall seems to call us to greater integrity. And I know most people would say David was the hero here and McCall was out of line. But considering how David treated her so poorly, a woman who once loved him deeply, McCall's disposition towards him seems justified to me. Because David, on the surface and in the eyes of all the people, is a conquering warrior and a man of the people who dances like one of them. But below that really likable exterior lies a man who is capable of being cold, calculating, and dismissive in his own home. When David tells Michal that he would become even more indignified and even more humiliating, we take it to mean that he would happily be a fool for the Lord. But David wasn't just stupid happy about the ark. And this wasn't his way of being humble either. He was basking in the attention he was getting from onlookers. He was taunting his first wife. He was turning people off to the very message he was trying to get across about his passion for God. As followers of Christ, this is our greatest challenge, to practice what we preach, to walk the talk. And it will be a daily struggle, but it's a sobering reminder that there will always be someone watching and something we do or say could be the very thing that hinders them from coming to know God. And sometimes the thing that hinders them is what we say or do as we express our love for God 
But instead of putting the blame on the people who are rejecting our message, let's ask ourselves, why is that? And almost always, it's because we come off as pretentious and holier than thou. We say that they don't understand our joy, but instead of helping them understand, we write them off. We can do better. Because our joy is not in the things or the rituals and celebrations. It's in who they point to. So let's work to make sure that we are also pointing in the same direction. Let's pray. God, it's true that you give us, as stated in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, inexpressible and glorious joy. Even when we undergo our respective struggles, each of us are thankful that you have given us life and you give us new mercies and strength for each day. However, we ask that you forgive us for allowing that joy to be expressed in undignified ways, whether it's in the overly casual way we come before you or in the ways we use your name to bring more attention to ourselves. As we metaphorically or even literally dance in your presence, help us to do it out of the spotlight so that you remain the main focus because you alone are worthy of our worship, our joy, our celebration, our everything. In Jesus' name, amen.